Amen. Our God is a great God. And if you're noticing the words there, holy, triune, all those great names of God. And we want to talk even further and more in depth about that as we study God's Word together. And I'd invite you, if you brought a Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. And we've begun a study in the book of Ephesians. And we chose Ephesians, that epistle that Paul wrote, six chapters, 2,000 years ago, because it was the most basic New Testament book out of the 27 New Testament books on how to be a Christian and how to have church, or how to do church, or how to live as a church. It's Christianity 101 on an individual basis and also on a corporate basis. And so we began looking at Ephesians chapter 1 for the last couple of weeks, and if you've got your bulletin, there's a handout in there, and you can follow along. As we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, picking up where we left off, verses 15 through 23. And I would add on there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, part 1. So part 2 is coming. I don't know how many parts it is, but anyway, this is part 1. We'll see how far we get today in the study of God's Word. And notice I put there, the theme through these verses, as we're going to read them, is, is knowledge. And I put there, knowledge is power, and that's what Paul's getting at and trying to get us to understand as Christians The more knowledge we have about the true God and Christ and our relationship with Christ, the more power will be accessible to us as Christians. So let me read. You follow along, verses 15 through 23. In the first 14 verses, Paul has greeted these Christians who lived at Ephesus. He pastored that church. He planted that church. He was there among them for many years. And then he's writing a letter to encourage them, to remind them of who they are in Christ. He told them they were blessed and immeasurably because of their relationship in Christ. As a matter of fact, they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies as Christians already. That's huge. And the greatest spiritual blessing is salvation, which God planned in eternity past, accomplished in history, and will be culminated in the future. And that's what verses 4 through 14 were all about, the nature and the greatness of God's salvation on behalf of those that He loved and saved. So God is excited, or Paul is excited about these great truths, and as a result now, he's going to pray on behalf of the Ephesians. And that's what verses 15 through the rest of the chapter is. This is one of two lengthy prayers in the book of Ephesians that Paul prays on behalf of his congregation, his saints. So listen to Paul's prayer, starting at verse 15. For this reason, that God's blessed us with every spiritual blessing and because of the greatness of salvation, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Paul concludes his prayer. So that is a a prayer of thanksgiving that Paul gives, and he lets the Ephesians know, when I pray for you, 
I, this is how I pray to God for you. This is what I pray to God on your behalf. This was very instructive for me to study this week because I needed to be reminded, okay, what should a pastor be praying for on behalf of his church? How should a pastor regularly pray on behalf of the saints and the sheep that God has given him that he's responsible for caring for? God, what are the priorities of my prayer life? And so I'm just thankful that I was able to study that this week and see, well, here was Paul's example. He was a pastor. He was a shepherd. And here were the priorities of his prayer on behalf of the saints. It's a model prayer. So I I thank God that I was able to, to be reminded and learn of the priorities of my prayer life as a pastor. What should I be praying for? Well, the theme throughout this prayer, if you'll know, go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 1 there. If you've got a pen, you might want to take notes or jot some things down. But to understand verses 15 through 23, you've got to understand there's just a few key words that unlock everything. First of all, in 15 through 23, there's a lot of verbs, but there's one key verb. And it's the main action of this whole passage. And it's in verse 16. Actually, there's two. Verse 16, giving thanks. That's a verb. It's an action. That was, that's what Paul was doing on a regular basis, giving thanks through prayer. Second part of it is also in verse 16, making mention of you in my prayers. That was the main verb of the entire passage, 15 to 23. What is this whole passage about? It is about Paul giving thanks and Paul mentioning, making mention of certain people in his prayers. That's what he was doing. So that drives the meaning of this whole text right here. What was Paul praying for? Well, there's one word that keeps cropping up at least three different times. Okay, Paul was praying, so this passage is about Paul's prayer. What was he praying for? Because everybody prays, for the most part. Every religion prays. And there's all kinds of models and ways to pray, and there's even different things we should pray for. Well, what was Paul praying for? Well, he was praying for knowledge. That word comes up three times. Look at verse 17. I'm praying, in verse 16, on a regular basis, so that, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Knowledge, key word right there. I'm praying for knowledge. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. It's the same word. God is, uh, Paul's praying for knowledge in verse 17. He's praying for knowledge in verse 18. And then also in verse 19, he continues with the request, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? And the word knowledge should also go in there. I'm praying that you will have knowledge regarding the surpassing greatness of God's power. So the main thing all throughout this passage is God is praying for knowledge on behalf of Christians. He's praying for knowledge on behalf of the saints. That's what this prayer is all about. There are three specific things he wanted them to know. And that's why I put there, knowledge is power. Paul knew that. That's true in our culture today. Knowledge is power, isn't it? No matter what your occupation, where you are in life, it doesn't matter if you think about that truth. It is a truth that knowledge is power. We spend all kinds of money and save money for years and years and even sacrifice things to send our children to the best college where we think they're going to get the best knowledge from the most knowledgeable people, right? Because we know knowledge is power. Knowledge leads to success. Knowledge leads to progress. It's true in the world. Sports teams, it doesn't matter. Professional sports teams especially, they hire who to be coached? They hire the most knowledgeable coach. The one that is most knowledgeable of the game and knowledgeable of how to utilize players and knowledgeable of how to utilize their staff. So there, again, is an example that knowledge is power in the world in which we live. Be it education, sports, those in the corporate world, right? Those who have the most knowledge about their specific occupation tend to rise to the highest level of authority and power. Knowledge 
is power. In the world of politics, that's not truer than anywhere in the world of politics, right? In politics, it's not who you are, it's who you know, right? It's who you know and what you know. Not so much the character of who you are. To rise to power, to rise to authority in politics. So knowledge is power even there. On a more practical scale, you need knowledge to excel in the usage of your computer, don't you? Especially in this day and age. We live in a computer age. I am a computer imbecile. I am a computer... I don't know how to say it. I'm not a... a, But anyway, I don't know anything about computer. I can do email. I can write a Word document. I can turn it on and turn it off, and that's about it. So I, I lack knowledge, so I'm greatly hampered, and that is bad news, and that's why I need people around me to help me in the basics of computer usage. My kids know more about computers than I do. So even there, knowledge is power. Uh, to play a video game, knowledge is power, isn't it? To beat the video game. I mean, today, apparently, you can go on the Internet and find out the secrets and the codes and the patterns to Mario Brothers and Star Wars and all these video games and then learn that and do that and just do what uh, the code tells you to do and then you succeed on the video game. That was true 20 years ago when I played Pac-Man at my local Safeway. That was the only video game that existed on planet Earth was Pac-Man. And the whole neighborhood used to compete uh, for Tootsie Rolls. And this one guy always destroyed us and obliterated us and didn't find out until years later that apparently he had knowledge of a secret pattern by which he could do Pac-Man and score way beyond everybody else because he had this secret knowledge he didn't tell anybody about that he got from somewhere to succeed. So knowledge is power. He was the king of Pac-Man. And I envied him greatly and never knew how how he was able to accomplish it. But it came down to knowledge, having knowledge. Uh, Knowledge is power when when it comes to chess, right? You've got to know the rules of the game and all of this stuff. You've got to be a smart, intelligent person and have knowledge to be equipped to succeed even at a game like chess or poker. You have to have knowledge of poker. At least you have to know how to cheat to win in poker, right? So that's knowledge. Again, knowledge is power. Paul knew this. This is a basic principle of life. Knowledge is power. And nowhere was this more true than in the Christian life and in spiritual growth. God knew that. It is an ordained principle from God that knowledge brings power. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8. Key verse, maybe some of you have this verse memorized, but um, it has to do with this truth that we're talking about, that knowledge is power. Jesus is out publicly teaching. Many times in the Gospel of John, John chapter 8, Jesus is publicly teaching and he gets into these bantering dialogues with his enemies, the religious Jews of his day, which were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They'd banter back and forth and they were always antagonizing him, trying to cause him to stumble in public and so... He's going at it with him in John chapter 8, the whole thing. Back and forth. And in verse 31, Jesus says this to the Jews who pretended to be his disciples, some of which were his critics. And Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, up to that point, many believed in what he was saying. But many, later on, would abandon him personally. There was a superficial allegiance at this time to Jesus. And Jesus knew it was superficial, so he challenges them with the statement in John 8, 31. He says, if you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, if you keep following me, if you persevere in your relationship with me, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will be real disciples, true disciples, faithful disciples, unlike false disciples. Like Judas was a false disciple, but it took three and a half years to expose Judas as a false disciple. So you have to persevere, continue to be a true disciple. 
So if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Knowledge is power. Having true spiritual knowledge gives you true spiritual power. That's what Jesus is saying. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. That's what Paul is trying to tell us in Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul is trying to unlock all kinds of unbelievable knowledge regarding what it means to be a Christian. And if we understand that and comprehend it and then apply it to our life, we will have great power and growth in our spiritual life as Christians. Many true, legitimate Christians go through long periods of their life, stunted, producing very little growth, having very little victory in their life, sometimes for months, sometimes for years, many times just because they lack true knowledge of their relationship with Christ. That's true. So Paul wants wants us to know the fullness of our relationship with Christ so we can grow exponentially in our relationship with Christ. We need to know the truth. The truth will set us free. Even there are exhortations in Scripture from the Apostle Paul where he told Timothy, Timothy, you need to know the truth. And that means you need to study. Timothy, study to show yourself approved so that you are the man of God. So knowing truth requires hard work. It requires diligence. It requires study on a regular, ongoing basis in our life. So we need to pursue truth and knowledge in order to bring about power in our life. But when we do know spiritual truth, as Jesus said, if we know truth, it's going to set us free. How? Well, knowing spiritual truth, uh, knowing spiritual truth gives us freedom. Knowing spiritual truth can give us liberty. It can give us freedom from guilt. It can give us freedom from anxiety, can it? When you understand a spiritual truth in a new way and apply it to your life. Understanding spiritual truth in your life can give you a supernatural confidence in life. It can help your faith grow. It can help you, give you emotional stability. It can help you overcome fear of the greatest things in life. Even fear of death itself can be attributed to growing in your knowledge about God. So these are the things that truth can give us. It can set us free. Uh, Working with children for the past 15 plus years, I've seen this great truth happen over and over again, that knowledge gives you power and that knowledge imparts freedom and knowledge imparts uh, liberty from fears in life. As I've worked with children over the years, including my own children, there's a common fear that young children have, and that is a fear of death, which we all have. And one of the common things that I've seen with children who have a fear of death is many times children think that Satan or the devil is in charge of hell, and Satan is the boss of hell, and Satan even determines who goes to hell. And so I've actually talked with young children and counseled with young children and talked to them trying to find out why do you have this great fear of death and this great fear of dying that haunts you all the time and uh, robs you of your peace and you can't sleep at night and I've had to dig and uh, I have found at times that some of these children believe they were afraid of dying and they were afraid of the devil and they, were, and they believe and I uh, asked them more and more questions. Well, why are you afraid of the devil? Well, he's, he might make me go to hell. And I said, oh, so you think Satan can make you go to hell? Yeah. Then I have to tell them, no, that is not true. Satan is not in charge of hell. He is not the boss. He doesn't determine who goes to hell. God created hell according to the Bible. God knows who's going to go to hell, and the Bible has made it clear who goes to hell. Those who knowledgeably, willingly reject the gift of Jesus Christ are the ones who go to hell. And that is the only reason those people go to hell, according to the Bible. So Satan has nothing to do with it. 
Satan is simply a victim who will be sent to hell himself because he deserves it, because he rebelled against God in eternity past at some point. And so I've shared this with, uh, I can think of a couple children that I shared it with, and it literally liberated them, totally freed them. They didn't have these anxious thoughts anymore, and they were like, really? Satan is not in charge of hell? Amen, God is. So I've seen that literally put children at ease and literally free them, knowing the truth, and the truth set them free. Knowledge is power. That's awesome. Knowledge is power. I was thinking about this week of, of biblical knowledge and how powerful it can be and how it can set us free and how it can help us grow and how it can encourage us so much. And it's pretty sad. There was a recent Gallup poll that I saw that over 90% of households in America own Bibles. They own Bibles. But very few of those households actually read their Bibles on a regular basis. And what this poll showed, and many other polls, that here in America, we are horribly, terribly, biblically illiterate. And I was just reading the answers to these questions on the polls that Americans who call themselves Christians and say they have Bibles and say they even believe in the Bible, and then they answer these questions, the answers were unbelievable. Uh, Most of them didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of them could not identify the four Gospels or what was that. Did you say the four Beatles? Is it John, uh, Peter, Mark, who, Ringo? No, the Gospels? Great confusion on something very simple regarding the Bible. Uh, Another one that was kind of interesting, a large percent of percentage of Americans that answered this poll said they believed that Joan of Arc was married to Noah. <laughs> Noah they, I guess they thought Noah's Ark, Ark was his last name, so married to Jonah, or Joan of Arc. And so that's just an example of uh, how biblically illiterate we are, for the most part, in America here. It's true that about 150 years ago, the average school-aged child here in America would be able to tell you the Ten Commandments from memory and in order. Can we do that today? Can you even name the Ten Commandments? Let alone in order. Wow, that's harder. What chapter of the Bible they're found in? That was just commonplace in American education. Psalm 23 and reciting it word for word. The Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Having it memorized, not just having it memorized, but understanding the meaning of it, which is even more important. These were just basic. Understanding uh, the 66 books of the Bible and the overflow of all of history according to the Bible. Just basic common knowledge that's almost absent and extinct in America today, let alone even in the Christian world. Great biblical ignorance. And so Paul wants to combat that by reminding us we need to know spiritual truth if we want to grow, if we want to have true spiritual power. So that's what he's going to try to show us in chapter 1. So let's go ahead and look at uh, in detail more Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Start at verse 15 again. Paul says, For this reason I too, and I asked you, what did Paul pray for? Well, here's what he prayed for. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, they believed in Jesus, they were Christians, they were professing Christians, and your love for all the saints. Early on, the church at Ephesus had great love for one another. We know that 40 years later, according to the book of Revelation, they forgot their first love, didn't they? They just got into the habit of routine and programs and tradition and precedent, and they forgot The priority, which was a fervent, fresh love for the Lord Jesus Christ because of the salvation that he bought for them. But at this point, early on in their faith, Ephesians, they were commended for the faith they had for one another and for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had their priorities right at that point. Verse 16, so Paul is rejoicing about this. So he is giving thanks on a regular basis, praying for them, praying for these people that he pastored for three years. In its present tense, I'm always giving thanks on a regular basis while making mention of you in my prayers. 
that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself. Here's some good reminders about biblical prayer, just in verses 16 and 17 that I was reminded of. According to the Apostle Paul, prayer needs to be specific, mentioning people by name. That's what he said. I was praying for you, verse 16, making mention of you in my prayers. Examine your own prayer life. When was the last time you prayed at length to God, one-on-one, privately by yourself? Be it in your room, a closet, somewhere by yourself. How long did you pray and how specific were you in your prayers? Because that was the example of Paul. Making mention of you. Literally thinking of the saints in his congregation. Making mention by name. Praying on behalf of their needs. Based on what Paul knew about that person and what their needs were. So we need to be specific in our prayers. The more specific we are in our prayers, the more specific answers we will see from God. Do you believe that? Because it's true. So it's a good reminder from Paul on how to pray. Very specifically also, uh, we are reminded we need to pray persistently. Two times he says, I do not cease giving thanks. I keep giving thanks in an ongoing, regular fashion. I keep on praying and keep on praying. Jesus gave illustrations in the Gospels about persistent prayer, being a bulldog in prayer. Keep knocking at the door till God answers. We need to be persistent in our prayers. Think of somebody you know right now that is not a Christian. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor. Can you think of someone? I can. Have you prayed for their salvation? How long have you been praying for their salvation? Have you given up praying on their behalf? That's easy to do because it can be frustrating, can't it? Five years goes by. Ten years goes by. Fifteen years goes by. God, are you hearing me? Is this ever going to happen? Oh, I give up. It's not doing any good. Paul said, no. You need to be persistent, faithful, keep Praying, not ceasing. Keep praying. Persistence in prayer. That's what God wants us to do. That's what Paul tells us here. Being specific. Being persistent in our prayer life. Uh, Notice this is beautiful at the beginning of verse 16. I do not cease giving thanks. Our prayers, regardless of what the content is about, our prayers always need to be salted with thanksgiving. We always need to... And who are we thanking on Thanksgiving Day, by the way? We are thanking God. No matter what is going on in our life, no matter what's going on in your life, we always have something to give thanks to God for, don't we? Always, no matter how bad it is. And so to be in the will of God, according to the book of Thessalonians, is to be giving thanks always to God forevermore and continually because God is worthy of our thanks. So this is how Paul prayed. He prayed specifically, persistently, with thanksgiving, no matter what was going on in his life. And one other important thing before we get to the main truths here of what he prayed for, that when Paul prayed, the emphasis was on people. The emphasis was on God, who is a person, and the emphasis was on people, the people that he prayed on their behalf, not so much circumstances or things. That was Paul's emphasis and priority in prayer. I was praying for you by name, he said. That's biblical prayer. So we need to do the same. Always emphasizing people. It's all about people. And then the content of what Paul prayed for, we already mentioned it, is that he prayed for knowledge. He prayed for his specific people, the saints, that they would have knowledge. And look at the specific content of Paul's prayer on their behalf. Verse 17. And this is what I want to highlight and emphasize today. So if you want to get out your handout there, we're going to emphasize verse 17, which is point number one there. And I wrote there in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, Pastor Paul, because he was a pastor, Prays that God would help Christians grow in their understanding of their spiritual resources in Christ. We need to grow in this way too. So point number one, we need to grow in the knowledge of our maker. Is the first point on there. The knowledge of him. So look at verse 17. 
I don't cease giving thanks. I'm always making mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I pray on your behalf. Verse 17. In order that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit. So that's what God is praying. And I would pray the same thing. As a matter of fact, I, pray, I tried to pray this way this week for this church. Going through people who have attended here the last four weeks by name, by families and by name. Praying that God would give you something. And this is what I was praying. God And Paul is praying that God would give them something. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you what? Money? Riches? Happiness? I didn't pray that for you. I'm sorry. Success at your job? Sometimes I pray for that. But that wasn't the priority this week as I prayed for you. I tried to mimic Paul's prayer first. This was the priority. This needed to come first. That God would give you a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. Those two words are very specific and they go together. And you need to know what they mean. The spirit of wisdom is the Greek word Sophia. Oh, I've heard that before. Maybe you know somebody named Sophia. Or Sophie for short. Sophie means wisdom. It's a beautiful name, Sophia. That God would give you a spirit of wisdom, Sophia. There were people in Paul's day in the Greek world called sophists. They prided themselves on having great knowledge, even having secret knowledge. And they were sophists. They took that word from the Greek word Sophia. That's kind of arrogant. We are the wise ones. We are the smart ones. We are the, the intelligent ones. You are the knucklehead. So it was rather a condescending term that they took to themselves. We are the sophists, the smart ones, the wise ones. So Paul prayed that they would have Sophia, that they would have wisdom. And it's a specific kind of wisdom. It is a spiritual wisdom. It just means spiritual insight. The ability to accurately assess and discern things on a spiritual plane. This is not human wisdom. This is wisdom that only comes from God. It is a supernatural gift that comes from God. And it only comes through the Scripture, and it only comes through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That is the only way we can have, Sophia, we can have spiritual wisdom, to have true spiritual insight and discernment. It's a gift from God. If you're not a Christian, you can't have this kind of wisdom. You can't. We read last week, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world, Satan, blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is if you are not a Christian, you are spiritually blinded by the devil so that you cannot understand and comprehend ultimate spiritual truth. If you are an unbeliever, you can't read your Bible and understand everything it has to offer, is what it's saying. Only a Christian can have, Sophia, wisdom to understand spiritual truth, ultimately. The main reason that's true is because when you become a Christian... And we saw this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. The moment you become a Christian, God gives you a gift. Not only does He give you salvation, He gives you the indwelling Holy Spirit of God who comes to be and starts living inside of you as a Christian. So I ask you, when did you become a Christian? Can you remember the time or the general time? Oh, maybe it was when you were seven. Okay, well, if you became a Christian at age seven, then the Holy Spirit literally took up residence inside of you and hasn't left you since then. And according to the Gospel of John and other places... The Holy Spirit, once He comes to live inside of you, He is called the teacher. He teaches you spiritual truth on a supernatural level and allows you to understand Scripture for the first time in a way you never could have as an unbeliever. The Holy Spirit is your teacher and allows you to understand spiritual wisdom in a way you couldn't 
if you were an unbeliever. So that's how you come to know true wisdom. So back to verse 17 there. God is praying for these Christians that they would go, that they would grow in their ability to understand spiritual wisdom or have spiritual insight into the realities of life from a biblical point of view with the help of the Spirit. I believe the word Spirit in verse 17 is a reference to the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit. By the way, the ability as a Christian to understand biblical truth in a supernatural way, that is called illumination, the doctrine of illumination. That's how we grow in our understanding. That's how we have the ability to understand biblical truth. The doctrine of illumination, that's when the Holy Spirit, our teacher, helps us understand spiritual truth. So Paul prays that they will have supernatural wisdom to discern spiritual truth. He prays a second thing for them in verse 17, that you'll have a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation. A very key word not used many times in the New Testament. The Greek word is apocalypsis. Oh, you've heard of that before, right? Apocalyptic, apocalypsis. The book of Revelation is known as the Apocalypse because the first word in the book of Revelation is apocalypsis. That's a Greek word used very few times, a very specific meaning. It just means an unveiling of something, to take the curtain away from something so that it can be unveiled and you can actually see it for the first time. And in the New Testament, consistently, this word apocalypsis means the unveiling of spiritual truth that we didn't know beforehand. And usually it's referring to Old Testament truths. Things hidden in the Old Testament that are now revealed in the New Testament. Did anybody in the Old Testament know Jesus' name would be Jesus? No. They knew of a coming Messiah, just general generic truths, that a Messiah was going to be coming of some sort, an anointed king. Did they know his name would be Jesus? No. His precious name of Jesus was revealed to us, the New Testament saints, in the New Testament because God unveiled it. Apocalypsis, an unveiling of one of the greatest truths of all, the specific personal name of our Savior and Messiah, Jesus. And His name means Savior. So that's just one example of a great truth that was hidden from Old Testament saints that we have the privilege of knowing. So Paul is praying, Ephesian Christians, I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom, spiritual insight to understand and discern things accurately, and also that He would unveil things for you so that you could know them in the fullest measure regarding of what it means to be a Christian and being related to Jesus Christ. That's his prayer. And he culminates with the end of verse 17. God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So what does he want them most of all to know? And what most of all does he want unveiled before they're spiritualized so they can understand for the Christian? What is priority number one that we all need to know and grow in our knowledge of? It's the end of verse 17. That you would grow in the knowledge of him. The NIV says that you would know him better. That is priority number one. That's why I put on there. We need to grow in the knowledge of our maker of who God is. Knowing God as a Christian is like being married. Did you know that? Actually, it's better than marriage because... Our spiritual spouse, God the Father, He's perfect. He never sins. We, on the other hand, we're sinful, aren't we? We do sin. But knowing God personally and Jesus Christ personally is like being married. It's a personal relationship. And when you get saved, you came to know God. You come to know Him personally through Jesus Christ. But your knowledge didn't end there on the day that you got saved, did it? When did you get saved? How many years ago? Well, you came to know Him in a personal way that day, but ever since then, you have been hopefully growing in your knowledge of Him. 
You want to know God more and more. That's how you grow spiritually as a Christian. That's what Paul wants. That's what he's praying on our behalf as Christians, that we will continue to grow in our progressive knowledge of who God is. That's priority number one. That's what it's all about. That is the basis of true Christian growth, knowing God. Knowing God. That's what Jesus said. Look, I want you to look at this verse. Look at John chapter 17. John, while you're flipping to John 17, if I were to ask you to define, please, Christian, define for me eternal life in a sentence. What is eternal life? You don't need to say it out loud, but come up with a sentence in your mind. Eternal life is fill in the blank. Well, I've done that before in Sunday school classes. I've actually had people write that down in Bible classes. And I've collected those. And I've read those answers and embarrassed those people. I'm sorry. Some people got the answer right, though. What is eternal life? Well, eternal life, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Jesus defined eternal life better than anybody and more succinctly than anybody in John chapter 17. Let's look at Jesus' definition of eternal life. What is eternal life? That's what we all want, isn't it? It's the most precious commodity in the universe, isn't it? All throughout history, eternal life, if I could only have eternal life. Jesus tells us what it is. John 17, this is the end of Jesus' life. He's about to be crucified. And just before his crucifixion, he spends... A lengthy time in prayer with God the Father, one-on-one in prayer, pouring his heart out to the Father. And this prayer is even prophetic in what it reveals. So starting at verse 1, these things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prayed, Father, the hour has come, of his, the hour of his death. Glorify thy Son, glorify me, God that the Son may glorify you. Verse 2, Even as you gave Him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. God, I, the Lord Jesus, can give eternal life to whomever I want to because you gave me that power and authority. Well, what is eternal life? Verse 3, And this is eternal life. Jesus defines it right here. What is eternal life? That they may know Thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That is eternal life. That is the essence of it. Eternal life is knowing God personally. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ personally, accurately, for who He is and what He did. That's eternal life. Most people, interestingly, and as you could expect, when you ask them what is eternal life, they define it in terms of quantity of time, right? Most people will say eternal life is living forever and ever and ever and ever and never dying. That is not the essence, first and foremost, of eternal life. It's not the quantity of life. Jesus says uh, a definition of eternal life is the quality of life. It's who you know personally. And that is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is priority number one. That is how you attain eternal life. That is how you get forgiveness of sin. It's by knowing God and knowing Him personally through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know first and foremost, and that is the kind of knowledge we need to grow in. We need to grow in our knowledge of the one true God, and it is a lifelong pursuit. Nobody here ever arrives in this lifetime. The Apostle Paul said that. He was the greatest Christian that ever lived. And at the height of his apostleship, he said, I have not yet arrived. And Paul knew he wasn't going to arrive while he was in this life. It was ongoing and progressive. And he had to keep growing in his knowledge of God and asking God to reveal things to him, to unveil truths to him. And through the Holy Spirit, help him to understand and discern these truths to apply it to his life. That's how you grow in your knowledge of God. And that's what Paul wants for us. Knowing God is the greatest priority. And by the way, we have to know God for who he really is and who he actually is according to truth. It's not knowing God based on our own conditions and it's not knowing God based on what we think God is like. Because everybody's got an opinion of God, don't they? 
For the most part, the whole world believes in God. Most Americans say they believe in God. The question is, well, what kind of a God do they believe in? Because everybody has an opinion of God. So if we want to grow in our knowledge of God, it has to be accurate knowledge about who God is. That's what Jesus said. Go back to the Gospel of John. Very important passage relative to this truth. That yes, we need to know God, and what we know about God needs to be in accordance with truth. Otherwise, it is not true knowledge. Here's Jesus talking towards the beginning, middle of his ministry. And he's talking to a woman who initially didn't know God. She thought she did. So Jesus kind of challenges her, confronts her, and he also unveils some truth for her to help her come to know God. And I think by the end of this conversation, it's very possible this woman came to know God, the Father personally, and Jesus Christ. But here's a key phrase in there of how that was possible according to Jesus. In John chapter 4, verse, start at verse 21. She's a Samaritan woman. She was a sinner. She had been married divorced five times. She was living with a man who wasn't currently her husband, yet she thought she was religious and she thought she knew the true God. And Jesus knew she didn't, but he was gracious, merciful, and loving towards her, and yet also he gave her truth so that she could, could come to know God. So he's evangelizing her. Listen to what he said in verse 21 of John 4. Jesus said to the woman, Woman, that was a term of respect, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain where she lived, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews worshipped, shall you worship the Father, the one true God. You worship that which you do not know. Lady, you're, you're ignorant of some things. You need to know the fullness of truth. He wasn't insulting her, he was just being truthful to her. You worship that which you do not know. Boy, that's true of a lot of people around the world, isn't it? They worship that which they do not know. They worship that which isn't even God at all. They're worshiping a false god. They need to be set free from that. That's what Jesus did. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we do know. We worship according to truth. That's what Jesus is saying. You've got to worship according to truth. For salvation came from the Jews. Verse 23, But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father, here it is, true worshipers shall worship God the Father in spirit, that's through the means of the Holy Spirit, and truth. The only way we can worship God is in accordance with truth. If it's not according to truth, then it's not true worship. So that truth needs to be accurate of who God is. When we worship God, we need to know Him for who He actually is. Like I said, there's a lot of false notions about who God is out there, and that will inhibit and even impede and even stop true worship of God. Like I said, most people in the world, they believe in a God. And there's a lot of wrong views of God, and even some of these wrong views have trickled down, unfortunately, into the church, and even today, in the evangelical church, false truths and notions about God have trickled down. Some of these are rampant false truths about God that really don't have any place in biblical Christianity. Here's some. Listen to just, here's a whole bunch of them. You don't need to write them down, but just listen. Here's some common false truths about God. He's only love. God is only love. Love, love, love. Yeah, God is love, but that's not all God is. He's more than love, right? So that would be an imbalanced view of God. God doesn't know everything. That's actually gaining ground in the Christian world. It's called open theism. That God knows everything that happened, everything that's going on, but he doesn't know the future. And surprisingly, a lot of evangelical Christians are adopting that view, that God doesn't know the future. It's unbelievable. Another false view about God. He did not punish Jesus on the cross. This is growing in what is called the emergent church movement by some of the key writers 
who have gone on record to say that that is not true. This historic idea that God the Father punished Jesus on the cross is wrong and cosmic child abuse. That's what they call it. Whereas we would say, no, that is exactly what happened. God the Father punished Jesus for our sin. And that's how and why I'm set free. That is a wrong view of God to say that. Uh, many people believe God the Father has a body. No, he doesn't have a body. God is a spirit. The spirit doesn't have flesh and bones, as the Bible says. A lot of people think that God is lonely. God the Father is lonely. As a matter of fact, God the Father was sitting around for all eternity, and that's why he created us, all these wonderful people, so he wouldn't be lonely anymore. Do you know the Bible says God is not lonely? He's totally self-sufficient, has need of nothing. He's not lonely. Some people believe God needs our help. God doesn't need our help. We need his help. Some people believe God helps those who help themselves. In the Gallup poll that I read, 75% of the people interviewed Americans who call themselves Christians and believe in the Bible said, yes, that's true, that's a verse in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Unbelievable. That is not a truth in the Bible. That is the very antithesis of biblical Christianity. God helps those who can't help themselves. God makes a priority of making, helping those who know they can't help themselves and cry out, God help me, I am helpless. Those are the Beatitudes. Some people think that God is mean and indifferent. Did you ever see Pollyanna, the Disney movie? Well, anyway, if you have, check it out next time. And the, It's got a preacher in it, and he's just a mean old preacher. And every Sunday, all he does is preach about the death and damnation and the hell and the wrath of God. And it's nothing but a constant, ongoing, negative message that God is always mad and mean at everybody. That is also an unbalanced view, isn't it? Because that's not a true, full picture of who God is. That's a distorted view of who God is. Some people say, well, God's not fair. He is unfair. That's not true. Some people say, well, God's impersonal. God's just a force. He really doesn't care about what's going on in our lives. Some people say that God's not the creator. He didn't create all things. He didn't create everything like Genesis 1 and 2 says he created all things. So they're denying the fact that he created all things and the way he created it. More and more people are denying that. People are saying that God can be known apart from Scripture. Ooh, that's a tricky one. Listen careful to that. People are wrongly saying that God can be known apart from Scripture. And I would say that God cannot be known apart from Scripture. And I'm saying God can't be known in a personal way apart from Scripture. We wouldn't even know Jesus' name if it wasn't for Scripture. We wouldn't know that he died on the cross if it weren't for Scripture. You can't just go look at a whole bunch of pine trees and come up with the gospel. Oh, yeah, he died on the cross, rose again the third day, and you gotta, you're not going to find that in nature. Nature will give you a general revelation about God simply to convict your conscience that you were created by a being that's greater than you. That's it. So nature offers information called general revelation that gives you enough to condemn your soul. But it doesn't give you enough information to save your soul. And that's why God gave us the gift of Scripture. So we could come to know the personal Creator specifically, even by His name. God has a personal name that was revealed in Scripture. In the Old Testament, it was Yahweh, a very precious personal name. The covenant, loving God of His dear people, Yahweh. And in the New Testament, Jesus took on that name, Yahweh. That's where Jesus got his name. Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, the Savior God. Revealed to us only through the Scripture. God can't be known personally, intimately, apart from Scripture. Some people say, well, God's an old man. He's feeble. He needs help. He's fragile. Don't fall over off your throne, God. Another common view, this is the most common view on planet Earth about God, that there are many gods. This is called polytheism. This is wrong. Uh, this is rampant in some quarters of Christianity that God can be manipulated. 
Did you know that? People believe God can be manipulated. He can be conjoled. He responds to uh, certain secret formulas and incantations. And if you just say the right thing uh, at the right time, enough times, then God will do what you want Him to do. Whether it's give you things, riches, health, wealth, prosperity, and so on and so forth. That is a wrong view of the biblical God. So we need to know the right thing about God. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, or verse 17, that it is the Holy Spirit that has to give you this wisdom. It has, to be, it has to come from the Holy Spirit. He has to be the author of what is true about God. And it has to be unveiled because it is supernatural revelation that you can't find on your own. You can't find it through human wisdom. You can't find it through uh, intuition. You can't find it going out in nature. It needs to be unveiled by God himself and dispensed by him accordingly and supernaturally. That's that word, apocalypsis, unveiled. And the main things that God wants us to learn about through discernment and the unveiling of truth at the end of verse 17 is knowledge of Him. How well do you know God? That will define what kind of a Christian you are. How well do you know God? How mature are you in your faith? It comes down to how well do you know God, the God of the Bible. And Jesus, that's what it's all about. It's a lifelong pursuit. We need to know the truth about God in order to continue to grow. That's what Paul said. That's priority number one. Well, I just listed some things that are true about God, lest you go away uh, confused by the things that I said that weren't true about God. Because maybe I read one of these things, and I said, categorically, this is not true about God, and maybe you thought, ooh, ooh, I believe that. Ooh, yikes. Where did I learn that? Or why do you say that isn't true? Well, here's some things that are true. And actually, these are distinctives of of the Christian God. Things that are true about God. Things Paul says we need to know about God. Things we need to know about Him. God is eternal. Did you know that according to the Bible, Christianity is one of the only religions that says their God is eternal. He is an uncreated being. God was never created. He's always existed. Well, how is that possible? I can't understand that. Neither can I. It blows my mind. It's beyond comprehension. It is a mystery. I don't understand that. But God is eternal. He is uncreated. He has always existed. That's amazing. God is totally self-sufficient according to the Bible. He has need of nothing, says Acts 17. Totally self-sufficient. Did you know that God was totally self-sufficient before He created the world, before He created humanity, before He created the angels, before He created anything? God, the Trinity, was totally self-sufficient in need of nothing? Then the, the natural question is, well, why in the world did He create us and mess everything up? What in the world did He do that for? Well, we'll talk about that later. God, according to the Bible, is perfect and sinless, totally without flaw. That is not true of the Greek gods, was it? They had all kinds of problems. Even Allah, the God of Islam, has all kinds of problems and idiosyncrasies and personality flaws. Just read the Quran. You'll find it all over the place. He is not perfect and sinless. The God of the Bible is holy. That means totally set apart, totally free of sin, and a God who must punish sin as well. So as a result, God is a God of wrath. He's not only wrath, but He is a God of wrath. He hates sin. He must punish sin. That's what the Bible says. And part of His holiness is the fact that He is a just God. People say, well, God's not fair. No, He is perfectly just. He always renders the accurate and deserved verdict every time. That sets, sets Him apart from us and other false gods. God is good by His nature. That's what the Psalms say. He's not a bad God. He's not a mean God. By nature, God is good. He is right. He is just. He is fair. God is love, says the New Testament over and over again. He is love. He's not only love, but He is love. And out of His love flows His mercy. Because He's loving, He's a merciful God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. 
We deserve consequences for our sin, but he chooses to forgive sin out of his mercy. He's a gracious God. He gives us what we don't deserve. That's grace. Because he's loving, he's forgiving. These are all these great attributes that flow out of the love of God. The true God is patient. He's not whimsical and capricious, and he doesn't have a bad temper that's out of control like the Greek gods did and other gods and even Allah. God is totally patient. He never does anything apart from his perfect timetable. He is long-suffering, the Bible calls it. He is so long-suffering and he is so patient right now, he is waiting for more and more people to repent of their sins, believe in Jesus to be saved. That's what he's waiting for. How come the world didn't end yesterday because God is patient, waiting for other sinners to repent, to be with him for all eternity? That's what 1 Peter says. He's a patient God, a loving God. The God of the Bible is a triune God. This causes a lot of people to stumble because they don't understand it. The Trinity. If I were to ask every one of you to write down a two-sentence definition of the Trinity on a piece of paper and turn it in and I read it, it'd be interesting to see what we come up with. Because the Trinity is very hard to understand. But principles from the Bible teach that God is a Trinity. All that is, is that God, there's one God, who in His one being, one nature, there are three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's three persons, not three gods. One nature, one being, one essence. How can that be? I don't know how that can be. That hurts my brain. I'm just reading the Bible and that's what it teaches. When I get to heaven, maybe I'll know him more fully so I can understand. But in the meantime, I take it by faith. God is a trinity. One God, three persons, co-eternal, co-existing, complementing one another perfectly in all of their ministries and attributes. God is the creator of all things. Uh, God is the judge. God is truth. Today we live in what is called a postmodern age. What is postmodernism? Well, it means that pretty much everything's relative. Truth can't be known definitively. There is no absolute objective truth that can be known. And you know what? Your opinion is just as valuable and viable as my opinion. Even if our opinions conflict, that's okay. They're all equal. That is postmodernism. So there are no absolutes. Well, the Bible says God is truth. Jesus said he was the truth. That is an absolute statement. So God is absolute. God is truth. And that's why we have absolute truth today, because God is the same. He hasn't changed. Speaking of the next characteristic that's true about God is that God is immutable. It means he's unchanging. God is not progressing. He's not getting better and better. As even some Christians would try to tell us today, that God is growing and changing and getting better all the time and evolving and growing in his knowledge. That's not true. God doesn't change. Jesus himself is God, and Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even Jesus as God is unchanging. Totally perfect for all time. Immutable, unchanging. The God of the Bible is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. God knows everything. Jesus asked Peter after the resurrection, "Uh, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know everything, Lord Jesus. That was Jesus in his glory. He knew everything. God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. God can do everything except what? Except sin or violate his own character. So God is all-powerful. He is not weak. He's not impotent. He's not dependent upon anybody. God is omnipresent, conscious and active at every place in the universe. How is that possible? I don't know. It's what the Bible says. God is a spirit. We already talked about that. God is transcendent. That means he's separate from his creation. He's not a part of his creation. He's separate, holy other. We don't worship the creation. We worship only the creator. He's transcendent, but at the same time, God is personal. 
He enters into personal relationships with people on a one-by-one individual basis based on the work of Jesus Christ so that the same transcendent, eternal, unchanging creator of the universe, I, little old insignificant, sinful me, can have a personal relationship with the almighty creator at the deepest level. God is a personal God and we can know him intimately because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That is awesome. That's an awesome truth. And that sets Christianity apart from many religions who don't believe that God is a personal God. And finally, God is infinite. He is infinite in all of his characteristics and attributes. Think about that for a second. That also hurts my brain. I cannot explain that, how God can be infinite in all of his attributes and characteristics. But that is true. So I know that was a mouthful right there. But I just felt as I was studying this week that we needed to stop and reflect on priority number one according to the Apostle Paul as he reminds the Ephesians of the thing that he was praying first and foremost for for his flock, that they would come to know their God better and better. And that would unlock everything else, and that would be the catalyst for growth in every area of their life as a Christian. And that is also true of us. So I would exhort every single one of us, including me, this week to make a priority and ask the question, how can I come to know God better this week? Read the Scripture. Listen to some Bible tapes. Get a good book on who God is. Pray to Him, talk to Him, ask Him to show Himself and reveal Himself to you through the Scriptures and through spiritual truth, and He will. And He will continue to help us grow. And that, as a result, we'll have a deeper, more intimate relationship with Him. And that's an awesome, great privilege we have. Well, right now, before we pray, I just want to encourage you. And I know we've got some first-time guests tonight, so I want to invite you, if you're a first-time guest and you want to know more about our church or meet me or just talk, Immediately after the service, after we sing a song, you go out the door to the right. I'll be there at our visitor's table. I have a little gift for you as our first-time visitor. Also, if you're a first-time visitor, I invite you again over to our fellowship meal to enjoy some yummy food and fellowship there. Or if you have a spiritual question at all about the Bible, uh, you can bring that question to me as well. Right now, I'm going to just commit our time to the Lord in prayer. If you could bow your head, close your eyes, and we'll thank God for our time together. And we'll just commit this time to Him in prayer. Father... Thank you for this day. Thank you for giving us physical life. Thank you for reminding us from Scripture. You are the creator. And you're also the giver of spiritual life in Jesus Christ. And Paul has been reminding us of that through Ephesians, that great truth. God, help every single one of us today go away challenged from Ephesians to seek to know you better and better this week and the rest of our life here on earth And God, you've got to help us. You've got to give us the the wisdom to do that through the Holy Spirit and through your Scripture. And you also have to unveil these things to us so we can understand them better because some of these things are very hard to understand. Some of these things are impossible to understand. So we need faith to believe them and just rest in you. Help us to do that. And God, I just pray your hand of blessing would continue to be on our fellowship as we commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.